Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Welcome, friends, to a special episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and each year we look back across my conversations with guests and select some of the highest engaged episodes to share with you. So this week we're featuring the conversation I had with Amy Bird. Amy speaks regularly at churches, conferences, and retreats, and has written five books, including her latest from Zondervan, entitled Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Now on this episode, Amy and I discuss how our understanding or misunderstanding of the Trinity relates to our perception of true biblical manhood and womanhood. Amy shares how the voices of women contribute to the fullness of God's story, both those voices recorded in Scripture and those voices speaking in the church today. Amy also discusses how our view of gender roles might be hindering our growth as disciples. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so feel free to send us a note at podcast at churchleaders.com. And now, I invite you to join me in my conversation with Amy Bird. Amy, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. Such a joy to have you with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now I'm I'm excited about this conversation. One of the things you've you've recently um, written a book entitled "Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood," mm-hmm. and to kind of kick off our conversation, um, I want to ask you a bit about the title. Um, okay. Why? Because I, I I know there's more behind this title, so I would love for you to kind of <laughs> share this. But but just at first glance, why would someone want to recover? from something that is biblical? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, and, you know, so I've been married about 22 years. And, um, you know, early in my marriage, I was in my early 20s. And that's exactly, you know, what I wanted to be. I wanted to learn um, how to be a biblical woman and a biblical wife. And so, you know, one of the big resources at that time was put out by the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and it's called Recovering Biblical manhood and womanhood. And, um, you know, I agree with much, much of their intentions for writing the book is to be a voice um, to respond to um, our culture right now with the sexual revolution and how um, men and women are being defined. And um, so as I read that book in my early 20s, and just having learned from a lot of the um, contributors in that book through, you know, different sermons and, and publications of theirs and, and valuing their input so much, um, there were some places where I stumbled <laughs> in reading there, but, you know, wanted to just go ahead and give the benefit to the, the writers who knew a lot more than I did and had a lot more experience than me. But um, as I grew in my Christian walk and in my marriage, um, and I went back to that book, I realized there's some, some real errors in there, including even maybe um, the, the premise in the title to set up what they're describing as biblical manhood and womanhood um, is pretty dangerous and, 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 and not exactly biblical. So, you know, I think that there had to be a response to that in some ways because the writing since then has grown and grown and we're, uh, coming out of the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, there's been errant teachings on the Trinity mm-hmm. um, and, and using this, t- this errant teaching about the son's ontology that in his essence, he is subordinate to the father. Um, and then they use that error to teach that women are in their essence subordinate to men for eternity. And, um, 
you know, this is very troubling and it's against confessional Christianity, um, Council of Nicaea. So I thought that needed to be addressed and it's, it's written throughout this book and then in many other publications that have come out of CBMW. And then even the premise that um, our goal in our sanctification, in our Christian life of obedience, faith and obedience, is our goal to become biblical women and biblical men. Is it that narrow? Um, or is it, do we share a mission um, with our, our shared mission being eternal communion with the triune God and one another? And then within that, our distinctiveness as males and females, like the tone of that comes out as we work together in dynamic reciprocity towards that same mission. Dynamic reciprocity. I love that term, Amy. Now, you mentioned that there were some teachings that you felt needed a response, some views being shared that do not necessarily align with Orthodox Christianity. You just referred to some teachings about the Trinity that uh, sort of misrepresent what we see in Scripture, and this would be around the theory of the eternal subordination of the Son, right? So, Amy, can you share with us how the ESS theory impacted your theology on the roles of men and women? Right. Um, You know, earlier when I was probably reading that doctrine and didn't even realize it because I myself was, you know, still very immature in my own theology in my 20s, um, you know, I might not have noticed the teaching in there so much. But then as I, um, you know, became more of a student of theology in the Bible, um, it became apparent to me that this is in a lot of their teaching. And even in the very much so in the popular level books for like women's ministries and the churches, some of the mm-hmm. best selling ones. And so I'm finding this in all of our, our literature that, you know, we're studying in our women's groups. Um, teaching that this this doctrine that the, the father is authority and the son is submission in his essence. And instead of making a very important distinction um, that this, when the son is submitting to the father, that is um, as our mediator. So we're talking kind of about the economy of salvation that when we, when we talk about the son's submission, um, we need to take into to account that the son, you know, the incarnate son has two wills, a divine will and a human will. So when we speak of his submission, then um, we need to be very careful to ascribe that to his, his human will or as mediator, um, that he shares the same divine will with the father. So this is very important. You know, mm-hmm. the, the culture that I came out of in the church, we've spent a lot of time nailing down the theology of our salvation, which is very important. But I think uh, the church is finding now that maybe we've done that as we've been doing that, which is very important. We've kind of neglected the doctrine of God. And um, so it's important to have a good understanding of what may sound like complicated issues, because when you're reading it in popular level books and now it's being ascribed to that's my role as a woman um, for some reason, you nowhere in Scripture does it say that men are supposed to be like God the Father and women are supposed to be like Jesus the Son. But um, this comparison is made that um, my ontology as a woman then is a subordinate one to the man. And so in that teaching, they also talk about woman being created second. And um, 
that since we are created second, that means that we are subordinate. And so there's this hierarchy in our very ontology. Um, and, you know, I began to see the error in that. And, and maybe that we're looking at this whole creation thing wrong, that it's not about hierarchy, but um, what does Adam see when he looks at woman for the first time? He sees his telos as Christ's bride. Um, flowing from his very side, right? Just as the church right. flows from, from Christ's side, he sees that he is to leave father and mother and cling to his bride just as Christ left the heavenly realm to cling to his bride and sacrifice his life for his bride. So when Adam looks at woman, he sees what he is to become. And that's a very glorious thing. And um, I, I would like to recover you know, a better theology, uh, or maybe a theological anthropology, even of man and woman, instead of reducing it so much as we've been taught in, in some of these books. Yeah, that's excellent. Now, it's, it's interesting that you say that, um, kind of undergirding um, some of the popular studies, you said even even women's, like women's Bible studies, is mm -hmm. this kind of misapplication of what Scripture's really saying in terms of the relationship um, within the Trinity and how that plays out um, across mm -hmm. gender roles. Um, is this perspective continuing to be emphasized in Bible studies and small group curriculum and other discipleship resources? Yeah, so I am in a complementarian church, and you know, much of what I have been reading coming from complementarian scholars have used this language. And um, even you know, going back to the the big book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, um, when they republished and updated the book, um, the new preface in there um, says that, you know, a practical embrace of biblical womanhood and manhood is presented, they present it as a, a key aim for preaching, teaching, and discipleship. And we're told that unless we embrace the teaching that is in that book, um, then Christian discipleship is going to become irretrievably damaged because there can be no talk of cultivating distinctly masculine or feminine virtue. Um, one can only speak of vague androgynous discipleship. And so they say we need masculine males and feminine females, um, which, you know, makes me want to ask so many questions um, like what makes a masculine male? and a feminine female, or, or what are feminine and masculine virtues? Are they different? Um, is biblical manhood and womanhood our aim in discipleship? Are there different approaches to, to discipleship then between men and women? Um, and these are all assumed in that statement. And then throughout the book, you, you see odd teachings about what a feminine female is then. Um, you know, the husband drives the car and orders for her at the restaurant, and um, it's not good for women to be too muscular. <laughs> it's just <laughs> odd things. And, and, but then you see books building off of this um, that we're studying still that teach these same things. And on the website, that, you know, there's, there's articles such as uh, uh, Sanctified Testosterone, um, talking about sanctified testosterone and, and, and soap bubble submission. And, you know, it's just odd. So, yes, I, I'm seeing it, um, so much of it in our popular level resources and in 
the biblical studies, you know, when I'm going into to more academic works as right. well. Now, I'm not saying that all complementarians are teaching this, but it's certainly odd that it's so accepted. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, now you said that you are in a complementarian church, uh, mm-hmm. but you've also shared with me that you, you're kind of an equal opportunity frustrator. You frustrate both <laughs> complementarians and egalitarians. Uh, I'm just mm-hmm. curious, what um, can, you, can you share with us how your thinking has kind of developed and would you consider yourself, um, not that, that I necessarily want to label you, but I'm just very curious because um, when you read Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, um, your book, and then, you know, I learned that you're in a complementarian church. So you're you're kind of speaking to your own tribe in a way and trying, like, where do you where do you see yourself, I guess, is, is the big question. Well, it's interesting because um, kind of what you were saying, what led to me writing this book this is the fifth book I've written, and and each one is kind of built upon. Like the first one was was a call to women that hey, you know we're theologians too, <laughs> and what we think about God is very very important to how we live before Him, and even in our practical daily lives. Um, and I got away with that, you know, everybody was encouraged by that one. <laughs> right. Um, and then I wrote a critical book about a lot of the. Um, the ways that women's ministries are being run in in complementarian churches and and in just the resources that are put out for us. And that was called No Little Women. And um, I I got a good response to that one as well. And a lot of that came out of, um, you know, the the speaking that I do in churches and just seeing um, the condition of a lot of women's ministries and in good churches. So, um, but then women are, are becoming frustrated as disciples. Like these women in a lot of these churches, they're not trying to subvert, um, you know, leadership roles in the church. Um, but they're finding that they're not being invested in as disciples, the same as the men are. And that when they, um, they ask for that, they feel like they are being threatening mm. and they really don't want to be. Um, and, and one of the things I really found was um, just our whole idea of, about men and women in relationship in the church as brothers and sisters needed to be addressed. Um, so I, I wrote a book called Why Can't We Be Friends, which actually, um, it, it actually stirred up a lot of controversy. <laughs> the mere fact that I was calling for a brother-sister friendship between the sexes in God's covenant community that promotes holiness in one another um, was controversial. Mm. So that was interesting. And then um, with this book, I really wanted to talk more practically about the church being the place where discipleship should happen primarily, not the parachurch, and um, how to invest in male and female disciples together who are retrieving the faith from the past, communicating that to one another and uh, communing in what we are sharing with one another. And um, there was a real stumbling block to be able to do that. And that is this whole biblical manhood and womanhood teaching. So that's what led me to, to write the book. And, and so when I talk about where I stand as far as complementarianism versus egalitarianism, um, I do not identify with the complementarian movement um, because of all the troubling teaching I find attached to it and its um, its obsession with authority and submission just for 
for everybody, for lay people as well. I think it actually diminishes the true authority mm. um, the, of the office of the ministry, and which I um, wholeheartedly uphold and value. And, um, and I also think it diminishes the specific responsibilities of headship given to men in a marriage, in a household, um, to you know, w- submit to your husband <laughs> doesn't mean submit to all men. Mm. And, and, and husbands are told not to rule over their wives. Right. They're not told you have authority over your wives. They're told love your wives with your very life. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, my writing isn't about who can be ordained. Um, I do go to a complementarian church and I uphold um, ordination um, for qualified, very important word, qualified men. And <laughs> most, most men are not ordained. <laughs> So, um, you know, 98% or whatever of the men in the church also have to submit to the the church officers, just like the women do, lay women do. So my writing is is geared towards discipleship with lay people. You know, what can a woman discipleship do? Right. A a woman disciple do? Is it different from a a man? And and what does the church lose if if we treat them? There are distinctions, but if we... We treat women less and in, in, in invest in them less as uh, being able to contribute theologically to the church and be in the heart of that culture as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, some of my critiques of the egalitarian movement is that um, while they want to include women in the life of the church, I, I often can't find where they find the woman's contribution specifically valued and needed you know, be, what does the woman have to offer that's different than the man? Mm. So, you know, what is her, what is the beauty and the distinction? So, um, you know, I try to equally frustrate <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, challenge and sharpen because, you know, I have, I have been sharpened and I've learned a lot from some wonderful egalitarian scholars that I've read and that I'm friends with. And, um, and I'm also challenged by um, some very good complementarian scholars and I think this is a conversation that, um, yeah, the leadership part is a conversation that's very important, but so often we go right there to the neglect of what's actually happening with disciples in that's the church. Good. That's good. That's really good. Amy, let's dig in a little bit there um, on the discipleship piece, mm-hmm. uh, because I think what you're saying is so true. Oftentimes we do kind of rush and the, the, the debate is often around um, you know, leadership roles men and women, as opposed to, you know, developing and growing as disciples. And one of the things right. that, that you say in the book is you, you talk about this need that we have in the church, that we need life in the church to be co-active. Mm-hmm. And um, you talk about this um, co-activity, men and women together in this idea of mm-hmm. uh, growing as disciples, developing as disciples. What do we miss when we separate men and women um, during mm-hmm. activities such as uh, studying God's word. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I think there's there's layers to this. Um, and I kind of begin in the book just showing the function of the of a woman's voice in scripture. It mm-hmm. often interrupts and it, it often shows a story behind the story um, that we don't get in the, in the male text. And so I think that that is very um helpful to see that the, the woman's voice often fructifies 
the man's voice and fills it out some and tells us a story behind the story. Ruth is such a good example of, of you know, a concentration of, a, of this kind of interruption in scripture where we have a whole narrative told in a more female perspective. And then at the end, you have this kind of genealogy that, that looks like it was just cut and pasted at the end. And um, I think that genealogy, um, Richard Bauckham writes, writes about this, um, it kind of, that is the same exact story, but told in a male voice, you know, um, and this son is born and this son is born and this son is born. But um, what we get in Ruth and in in, uh, Naomi, um, we see the story behind the story. Um, and, and it's so rich and, and there's a lot exposed there that we can learn about God's chesed love for his people. So um, I think that the woman's voice can function like that in a lot of ways in the church as well. There, there are blind spots everywhere. And um, it's wonderful to be able to not only as women be able to maybe fill in the, the male voice, but also as just distinct, unique individual people. Um, to, you know, we're all gifted in different ways and we all have different insights as, as men and women. So um, we're, we're missing that reciprocity if we're constantly separating the men from the women. And we're also missing um, other parts of the story that we may not be seeing. Yeah. So um, I, I love that the idea of, you know, it's kind of the fullness of of the narrative that is unfolding, you know, God's story that is unfolding and, and the, the fullness as you said, is um, tends to be missed if mm-hmm. we're separating, you know, especially separating out um, by gender, right? Because right. Um, in scripture, as you've said, there's examples of this, uh, what you call, you know, these interruptions. I- I'd like to talk a little bit more about some of those interruptions because Ruth is an obvious one. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, we see Esther in the Old Testament as well is an obvious one. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit, um, how-, how do some of these interruptions show up in the New Testament? Oh, yeah. Well, we cannot share the gospel. <laughs> without beginning and ending with women's voices. Right. Um, you know, Luke, you know, we have in the very beginning, um, Christ's birth, Christ's birth being, you know, or the announcement being told by women, Mary and Elizabeth. Um, so we have Mary and Elizabeth together, um, both pregnant, (laughs) talking about the savior of the world Mm. who is to come. And then when Christ raises from the dead who does he appear to first to mary magdalene to the women and and tells them to go be an apostle to the apostles in a sense uh, you know what they were called you know even in, in church history um to share this great news with his apostles christ is risen from the dead um so we even the details that we have of his death on the cross and even John Calvin um, attests to this. Most of the of the details we get in the Gospels, they had to go to the women to find out. I mean, John was there; he didn't leave. But the rest of the disciples fled. Mm-hmm. Who stayed? The women who had been traveling with him for a couple years. <laughs> um, the women stayed, so they were the ones who could give all these details. So you know, their voice is so important. It, to even every time we share the gospel. That's powerful, Amy. And these really provide examples in scripture of men learning from women, right? So women sharing these important details, women sharing their experiences. And this kind of connects to another big conversation that's taking place in the church today. um, And that is, you know, the concern that some have regarding women teaching men. 
Uh, Amy, can you share some other examples that we find in Scripture, maybe some lesser-known examples of men learning from women, and then kind of how do these examples impact how we view discipleship in the church? Well, I, I love the example of Huldah in the Old Testament. Um, you know, she's like one of the first, well, the first person we see to actually confirm a piece of the canon of scripture, uh, which, you know, with authority, which is amazing. Um, and if, if we go to the New Testament, and, you know, we have Deborah and, and plenty of women in the Old Testament as well, um, never mind that we have the theology from Hannah's prayer <laughs> that we learn so mm. much from, or Mary's Magnificat that we learn so much from. But um, in the New Testament, you know, we love to go to Priscilla <laughs> and, and show how with her husband she corrects Apollos. But, um, you know, one that I really like to go to, and there's so many, but um, uh, with Phoebe uh, delivering the letter, the epistle mm. of the Roman to the Romans. Um, so Paul authorizes her to deliver this letter. And I love what um, Mike Bird questions and challenges about this. Um, who are they going to ask? When they don't understand, you know, what does Paul mean by this word here or in this this paragraph over here? I, I don't quite get it. I mean, have any of us read Romans without questions? <laughs> Still, <laughs> right, 2,000 right. years later, uh, we have a lot of questions. Um, Paul had to invest in her, you know, and, and she's the one he cho- he chooses for this. Um, there were likely travelers with her. It was dangerous to travel that distance, you know, by yourself as a woman. Um, but she's the one he authorizes to deliver this letter, um, knowing that she's going to be asked questions. So she is like the first commentator or interpreter of Romans. That's, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, no and doubt. I, you can't get around that. And then he uses at the end of uh, Romans, you know, what used to be such a um, kind of a boring section of scripture to me, um, all the greetings at the end, has now come alive to, to show like this is the picture of the dynamic reciprocity of the church between men and women. We see Paul calling several women co-laborers, you know, working side by side in the ministry with him. Um, that is a pretty big deal as well. It's a, he uses strong leadership words even to speak of these women and commend these women. Yeah, those are great examples. And, and really they should inform how we look at discipleship and leadership and teaching in the church, right? So, Amy, I want to pull back a bit and ask a question with a, a broader scope, which which applies to not only the specific topics we've been discussing, but a variety of biblical topics. Oftentimes, people tend to just kind of accept theological teachings without really digging in themselves, and you're a perfect example of someone who, you know, kind of was like, you know, owned your own development as a disciple and your your learning of of scripture and your understanding of of, you know, what is God um revealing to us through his word and through his church. Um what can you share with us about kind of that that need to to really dig in on our own um and, and in a safe way, you know, so we're not just off chasing some crazy tangent and, right. and maybe making scripture fit um, a worldview or some thoughts that we already have in kind of right. cramming scripture and theology into that. But mm-hmm. but can you talk to us a little bit about 
about that journey, that that responsibility that we have as as individuals, and how that plays into the responsibility of um, the church as a whole in our development as disciples. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two two big things I'm thinking of here. You know, one is we have our confessions given to the church. Um, you know, we have the um, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, which are extremely wonderful and helpful that the church has been handing down um, from the earliest of times, right? And confessing together, like the Holy Spirit has worked in this way to preserve an orthodox confession of the faith. And then, you know, whatever your denomination is, there, there are often um, confessions available to you there, too, to help um, kind of put guardrails for you know, what your denomination um, teaches that um, is in the Word of God. And that's very helpful for me as a, as a Presbyterian because um, I have the Westminster Confession of Faith, mm-hmm. and that helps me as to have gu- these guardrails then um, as I am exploring questions such as these. But also, we have our seminaries and our academics and our preachers, and they are gifts to us. But the point is not for the academics to just be talking to themselves about everything, um, or for pastors to just be talking amongst themselves in seminary, uh, or pastors in training even. Um, The point is for it all to trickle down (laughs) to God's people. The point is that we are commissioned as a church to make disciples in our covenant communities. And so I think that this is a great time where we have so much available to us resource-wise right at our fingertips. Um, you know, the books that we have, um, even on the internet, <laughs> everything that we can find on the internet, um, you know, that can also lead to, to just looking to a parachurch or something like that instead of being discipled in your church. And, and so we first, you know, we need to look at the gifts of the ministers given to us in our local church um, and go to them and ask them questions. And then, you know, ask about resources and things um, that can help us grow in areas where we want to grow. I love thinking of different topics like that, you know, questions that I have that I want to learn more about. What are the best books out there? You know, maybe with some different positions um, that I can read. You know, life's too short to read the second best and the third best, you know, and, and, and look in history of what the church has been confessing about this. And that's our responsibility because we are handing this down to the next generation, our confession of faith. That's good. Amy, it's been so good to talk with you. I'm just curious, is there anything that maybe we haven't touched on or something else that you'd like to leave with listeners um, that you'd just like to share? I could talk for hours. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me, this is, you know, the book itself is not meant to primarily be a critique. That's not really where I want to go. It needs to happen, so I needed to directly do that. Mm-hmm. But the book is really about revealing, um, you know, what's behind, you know, what's more, opening those doors um, of biblical manhood and womanhood and having us look at what, you know, all of theology for us. And, um, and it's so beautiful. So that I encourage, you know, listeners to, to do that themselves and, and to want to find, you know, what is beautiful about God's church and God's people in the church and, and that we are comprised of, of male and female disciples. Excellent. Excellent, Amy. If people want to connect with you um, either personally, maybe on social or um, connect with your speaking ministry, your blog, those types of things, um, your podcast, how, how can they best connect? Yeah, so I write at housewifetheologian.com. Um, that's a part of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. So you can find some of my blogs over there and, um, 
you can email me at mail at housewifetheologian.com. And um, I'm on Twitter, Amy Bird HWT, and I am a co-host of a very fun podcast called Mortification of Spin that I co-host with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Excellent, excellent. And we will have links to all of those uh, resources in the show notes for this episode for our listeners. Amy, it's been so good to have you with us. Thank you for taking the time, sharing a bit of your journey and um, how God has been guiding and speaking into your life and how you've been sharing that over the years um, with with the greater church. We appreciate your work, your heart, uh, your ministry, and recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood. It's going to be releasing this spring um, mm-hmm. of 2020, and I really encourage our listeners to uh, pick up a copy and dig in because it's got some great, great resources, not only, as you said, um, kind of critiquing a little bit of what some of the teachings within the church have been around biblical manhood and womanhood, but also really driving into that idea of developing as a disciple and what does that look like um, in the fullness of that across genders within the church. So, uh, man, we really, really are thankful that you um, for your voice and that you've um, been with us here on the podcast. And thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance, and if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FavePlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well, and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.